Um, you're going to need a Bible, and uh, can you guess what the, the story is today? Uh, Luke 19 is where we're going to be, and this is our second case study. I was going to sing the song, but now I don't have to, um, which is great. Thank you, Emily. I always thought it was, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. You're the next contestant on the, pr- no? Okay. Um, but we all know the story, right? If you um, grew up in the church, most likely, uh, you know the story of Zacchaeus, right? The wee little man, and we sing the song, and you've done the flannel graph, and we all kind of know this story, but this is the second case study that we're looking at. So we're in a series um, about money, and what does the Bible teach us about money? And we, uh, last week and this week, we've been looking at two case studies. Basically, we want to look at rich people who encountered Jesus and what was their response uh, and so case studies are, you know, a, a, a story of an individual person, but then what do we learn from that story? What principles can we pull out uh, from that story? So last week was the rich young ruler, and if you remember, Jesus confronted the rich young ruler uh, on his, his idol of money. He loved money. He worshiped it, and Jesus told him, uh, if you want eternal life, you need to sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And the response was, well, he left sad. And that's when Jesus said, well, actually, it's, it's very hard for wealthy people to enter into his kingdom because uh, we, we come to Jesus just carrying all of our stuff, right? But the, the good news was, Jesus said, what's impossible to man is possible with God. So God can do the impossible. So um, this morning... Uh, is the second case study, Zacchaeus, and what it's meant to do is be the antithesis of last week. Because here we have another rich person who comes and meets Jesus, but his response is, is basically the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. So uh, really just two parts to our sermon time this morning. We want to just read the story, uh, understand what it means, what's happening in this story, And then we just want to ask, well, what is the point of this story? And really, I only have one point of application for you this morning. So it'll be quite simple today. So um, let's let's read the account. Um, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. So it says this, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. 
For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Uh, So here we have, right, like I said, a well-known story, but we have Jesus who's entering Jericho, and really what he's doing is he's passing through Jericho on his way to um, Jerusalem. Uh, If you were coming from the northern part of Israel and you were heading down towards Jerusalem, you would pass through Jericho. And Jericho was a wealthy city. Um, Herod, King Herod, he had his winter palace there. So like think Palm Springs where everyone goes, right? It's so very nice city. Actually, the climate was quite nice uh, year round. And so uh, lots of wealthy people lived there. And that's where Herod spent his winters down in Jericho. And then Luke introduced us to one of the main characters. His name is Zacchaeus. And what we're told is Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Now, how it worked in that day and age is what the, the, the Roman Empire would come and they would conquer different nations and cities. And then they would uh, uh, set up tax collectors who would then uh, tax the citizens to give the, the money to Rome. But what they, how they incentivized people was, hey, listen, you can charge people whatever you want. Right? So if taxes are $100, you can charge $1,000 for all we care, as long as you give us our portion, and then the tax collectors could keep whatever they wanted, right? As long as the portion went to Rome, you keep all the rest. And so what they would often do in Rome is they would appoint Jewish tax collectors. So think about that. You're already a conquered nation, and now you have your fellow kinsmen, right? People who are Jews as well, and now they're taxing you? For Rome, and they're also um, adding taxes to it so that they can get rich off of it. Now, that's bad enough as it is, but we're told that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. So what that means is that he was in charge of a whole system of tax collectors. So I don't know if anyone's come to you and they said, I want to talk to you about essential oils. And you're like, oh, okay, interesting. Do you want me to buy them? And they're like, no, I want to change your life. I want you to sell them underneath me, right? And then you find three other people, and you're like, it kind of sounds like a pyramid. Uh, sorry if you sell essential oils. Um, but that was, that was Zacchaeus. He was at the top, and then he had other tax collectors that worked for him, meaning Zacchaeus got a cut of all of theirs, right? So he is like, he is like the top dog in the tax collecting system, and so We can assume that Zacchaeus was not just wealthy, he was like very wealthy. And he, uh, like most tax collectors, uh, he was hated, right? Oftentimes the New Testament, when they tell stories, they use tax collectors almost as uh, like a bad word. You're as as bad as a tax collector, right? So he's a hated man. And he has uh, robbed and cheated people, but he's also the top of a pyramid where all of these other tax collectors have robbed and cheated people, and Zacchaeus is is benefiting from it. Now, think about it. Why would anyone do that? Like, can you imagine, right, your neighbor or someone in our church even who was like, I'm going to work for the government of Canada. Oh, Oh, that's awful. uh, But let's say that the government of Canada said, we're going to start a new tax system. Tax collectors can uh, collect whatever they want. And why on earth would someone cheat their own people 
and rob people from money and build all this wealth. The only reason is you must really love money to do that. Right? You have to love money to say, you know what? All my neighbors, all my friends, all the people in my church, I'm going to cheat them out of their money. Like, you, this guy loves money. You, you would have to love money. So we're told in verse 3 that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So you need to understand that, like, the, 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 the word about Jesus spread rapidly. Here's a guy that can heal the sick. Here's a guy that can uh, cleanse people. He can cast out demons. He's, he's turning water into wine. He's feeding thousands of people. So Jesus' popularity... Uh, was spreading. And so I have no doubt that Zacchaeus uh, had heard about this guy. Who is this Jesus? And he wanted to see him, but we're told that he couldn't see him because he was too short. Which you, you would have to ask, well, Zacchaeus, why don't, if you're short, why don't you just go and stand in front of the taller people? Do you know why? I think because no one in the crowd would make room for him. We hate Zacchaeus. And if Zacchaeus was like, excuse me, can I come through? Can I just get through? So They would be like, no, get out of here, Zacchaeus. Why would I be kind to you and let you in to the front of the crowd? I think that's why. He's, he's probably trying to get through, and the crowd is, get out of here, Zacchaeus. You cheat, you robber. We don't want anything to do with you. Don't let Zacchaeus through. And so what does he do? Well, he climbs a tree. Now, if you saw an adult climbing a tree today, you might be like, that's odd, but that's cool, right? Getting in touch with their childlike spirit or whatever. You have to understand, wealthy, important tax collectors don't climb trees. I mean, one, they all wore tunics. Use your imagination. Uh, they don't climb trees. It is so, in an honor and shame culture, it's very shameful for a full-grown man to climb a tree like a little child. So what does that tell us? This, like, reeks of desperation. Zacchaeus is like, I can't get through the crowd. I have to see who this Jesus is. So I'm going to risk my dignity, my honor, my reputation, my social standing as a wealthy person, and I'm, I'm climbing the tree. And so Jesus walks by, and he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus, so I, I don't think Zacchaeus and Jesus have ever met. So here you have the, the all-knowing power of Jesus. He already knows his name. Zacchaeus, come down. Uh, I'm going to go to stay at your house today. Staying at someone's house, um, especially eating a meal with someone in that culture, if you would eat a meal with someone, it indicated that you were friends with them and that you accepted them. So an act of hospitality, like if you invited someone over to your house, the surrounding culture would look at that and go, oh, they're friends and they approve of one another. They, they love each other. There's, there's a, a deep friendship there. So it, this is massive that, that Jesus singles out probably the most hated guy in Jericho and says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay at your house today. And then in verse 6, we're told that Zacchaeus receives Jesus joyfully. Uh, and the word joyfully means with great rejoicing. Now, here's what's interesting. It's used nine times in the book of Luke, this word uh, joyfully. And all of the times, it is connected to when someone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus. So it's not just 
Woohoo! I'm going to have a dinner guest today. Look, I'll give you an example. Luke 8, 13. The ones on the rock, right? He's talking about the, uh, those who build their lives on the rock and the sand. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, what's the word? The gospel, they receive it with joy. So I think that when, when Jesus said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, and Zacchaeus received him with joy, that was the moment of his salvation, Then it goes beyond just, I'm receiving Jesus as a guest in my home. I think Zacchaeus was rejoicing because he goes, salvation for someone like me? I'm receiving Jesus with joy? Now, what's the response of the crowds? Um, They all grumble, which, I mean, the crowds always seem to grumble. Uh, They they hate Zacchaeus. Like, think about it. These are the crowds that don't, don't let Zacchaeus in. Don't let him come to the front. We hate that guy. And now out of all the crowds, who does Jesus, who does he go to eat with and stay with? Zacchaeus. I'm sure they were like, oh, Jesus, if only you knew. This guy's the worst. And then they grumble. He's going to, if only he knew. If only he knew who he's going. He's going to eat with a sinner. Ugh. Here's Zacchaeus' response. Verse 8. So Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Right? Now, now, Jesus, here's my response. Half of my goods I'm going to give to the poor. And now I'm going to re- repay anyone that I've defrauded four times. So if I've stolen, if I've defrauded someone out of $1,000, I'm going to pay them back $4,000. Four times what I stole from them. And, and Jesus then says, well, clearly today salvation has come to this house. Now, what Jesus doesn't mean is, oh, okay, you gave your money away So therefore, you have now earned your salvation by by giving your money away. What Jesus means is, oh man, it is so evident, Zacchaeus, that you have received salvation because look at the way you're responding. You giving your money away to the poor is an evidence that your heart has been changed. And then Jesus says, that's why I came. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I hope you notice if you were here last week, this is basically the exact opposite of last week. The rich young ruler leaves sad because he goes, I just can't part with my money, Jesus. And here we have the opposite of Zacchaeus meeting Jesus and not not even being asked. Notice that Jesus doesn't even have to ask Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stands up and says, here's what I'm going to do, Jesus. And he willingly gives his riches away. Now, I don't know for sure, but if you gave away half your riches and four, like, I think this might bankrupt you. So that's the story. Here's the main point. Uh, One point for us this morning, it's this. Our generosity towards others is directly related to our view of God's generosity towards us. I think this this is the main point of The story of Zacchaeus. What's the principle from this case study? Is that your generosity in your life towards others, and and this could be generosity of money, of your possessions, of time. Your generosity towards others is directly related to how you view God's generosity towards you. Like look at Zacchaeus. He sought after Jesus. He received him joyfully. Jesus came to his house. And what was that? On, on Jesus' part, that was an act of 
compassion and mercy and grace. I'm going to come to the worst person's house. I'm going to extend mercy and grace and friendship towards this sinner. And the response to, to Jesus' generosity towards Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus' own generosity. Here's why I think this is huge. Um, there was prescriptions in the law for what Zacchaeus should have done in this scenario. So what I mean by that is that the law said in the Old Testament, which Zacchaeus would have known because he was a Jewish man, the law said that if you actually got caught doing something wrong, if you got caught defrauding someone or cheating someone, you had to pay them back with 20% interest. That was the law. Numbers 5-7. It says, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. So technically, Zacchaeus could have said, um, okay, I've done wrong. What does the law prescribe? The law prescribes that I pay you back and I add 20% to it. So if I've stolen $100 from you, I'm going to give you back $120. I'm going to add 20% to it. Zacchaeus pays back people he's cheated with 300% interest. Like way more than he has to. So notice, for Zacchaeus, it wasn't, okay, Jesus, you've changed my life. How much must I give? For Zacchaeus, it's, how much can I give? Like, look at what Jesus has done for me, a sinner. I'm not going to do the bare minimum. Like, he could have. But I think we see a massive heart change in Zacchaeus because it's not, what is the bare minimum I have to do to kind of clear my name? Zacchaeus is like, oh, it's 20%. I'm going to give back 300% interest. Why? Because look at the generosity that Jesus showed him. I think one of the reasons that we struggle with generosity, and, and I know myself, sometimes I can catch myself, what, what is the bare minimum I, as far as generosity goes? I think one of the reasons is because we just haven't fully grasped the generosity and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the love of God given to us in Christ Jesus. We don't understand how unbelievable the generosity of God is. And so then we ourselves aren't generous. So then we ask questions like, well, how much do I have to tithe? 10%? Is it net or gross? What if I only want to tithe 8 And we, we play the game of how much do I have to give? I, I've had conversations as we've been going through this series, those exact conversations. Well how, well, how much do I have to give? How generous do I have to be? Where's the bar, right, so that I can just clear the bar? I think it's a, it's, a, it's a sign that we don't understand the generosity of God. Notice that Zacchaeus doesn't say, Jesus, you've changed my life. What is the bare minimum that I have to give back so that I'm good? And he doesn't even ask. He just says, I'm going to give it away. 300% interest. Um, we see this all throughout the scriptures. When people come face to face with the goodness and the holiness 
and the generosity of God, it changes everything about their lives. Everything. I'll give you two examples, okay, from Scripture. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament that kind of, I think, backs up our main point. That our generosity is directly affected by our view of God's generosity towards us. If you go to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6, we see the prophet, he has, uh, well, he sees God. He sees the holiness of God on full display. Isaiah 6 says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, those are angels, each had six wings with two He covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Like, can you imagine seeing the glory of God, the holiness of God, God seated on his throne, and His robe, the train of his robe fills the whole temple and there's smoke and angels flying and worship and the temple is shaking because of the awesomeness of God. This was Isaiah's response and it's the right response, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What Isaiah is saying is, I'm finished. I'm about to be smited. Like the fact that me, a sinner, a lost man, I have unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of all these people who are sinners with unclean lips. God is going to wipe me out. Lightning bolt, pile of dust, Isaiah. I mean, that's what he's expecting. Would you not expect the same? Like me, sinner, broken? I know my thoughts. I know my heart. Standing in front of a perfect holy God, he's going to destroy me. Here's what happens, verse 6. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs. From the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Look at this. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Not what Isaiah was expecting. Wait, I'm I'm a man who is guilty and sinful and wicked, and my heart is dark, and I deserve to be completely wiped out by your holiness, God. And yet God, in an act of unbelievable generosity says actually Isaiah I'm going to cleanse you and your guilt is going to be taken away all your sins are atoned for I mean that's talk about generosity Isaiah does not get what Isaiah deserves then if you keep going verse 8 then it says I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us what does Isaiah say Here I am. Send me. Right? How how could your response not be that? Jesus, you've just atoned for my sins. You've cleansed me. You've forgiven me. Okay, well now we need someone to go for us. 
obviously sent me. Do whatever you want, God. And, and look, uh, here's what God says, and, and, and it's, it won't be on the screen, but God says, here's your mission, Isaiah. You're going to preach. Nobody's going to listen to you. And Isaiah says in verse 11, well, for how long? Until all the cities lie waste. And notice that Isaiah never says, actually, that sounds like a terrible assignment. I take it back. Here I am. Don't send me. Why? Why does Isaiah take on an impossible job? Go and preach. And by the way, no one's going to listen to you until the whole city's wiped out. Why would he do an impossible task? Because look at what God did for him. Give me whatever task you want, God. Why? Like, Isaiah was willing to give his whole life because of the generosity and grace and mercy and compassion that God had shown him. It doesn't matter what the job is. It does not matter what the job is going to cost me because I was shown mercy when I should have received death. God, you get everything. Second example, if you flip over to Luke chapter 7, an amazing story that shows exactly the main point that I think Zacchaeus shows us, that our generosity towards others is directly affected by our view of God's generosity towards us. Luke 7, starting in verse 36, it says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner." So here you have a a scandal that takes place at a dinner party. And a very well-respected religious person, this Pharisee, uh, we're told later that his name is Simon. He has Jesus over and he is eating with him. And then this woman, and some scholars think that she was probably a prostitute, this woman who has a terrible reputation in the city, comes and stands at the feet of Jesus because they would eat lying down. That was the Middle Eastern culture. So she's at the feet of Jesus and she's weeping over his feet and getting his feet wet and she's wiping his feet with her hair and pouring expensive ointment on her feet. And so, like, listen, obviously uh, it's a little odd, right? If you were at a dinner party and this happened, you'd be like, what? But here's why uh, uh, the Pharisee is, is really upset because he says, oh, this, t- this woman, if Jesus knew her reputation, if Jesus knew the things that she's done, if Jesus knew the type of woman that she is, he would be appalled that she's doing this. So here you have the upstanding, good, moral person. I've never done anything wrong. I'm a good Pharisee who is appalled at a a, a desperate act of worship. So then we read on. Verse 40, Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? 
Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So do you see the difference between a broken, desperate person who just wants Jesus and a guy who's got it all together? The guy that, I've got it all together, and so I'm not even going to offer the basic hospitality things to Jesus because in my view, Jesus is just another person. So I'm not even going to offer to wash his feet. I'm not going to greet him with a kiss, which was common in that culture. And yet you have this woman that is so desperate to see Jesus. And so Jesus, isn't it interesting the parable that he tells? There's someone who owes 500 denarii and another 50. Both debts are canceled. Who is going to be more glad? The, The bigger the debt the happier you are that it gets canceled. It just makes sense, right? If you owed a family friend $10,000 and another family friend owed them $500 and the family friend said, I'm gonna cancel both your debts. If you owed 10 grand, you're gonna be way more thrilled than if you only owed 500. It just makes sense. The bigger the debt, the happier and more joyous you are that it got canceled. So Jesus goes on, verse 47, therefore I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. When you, when, when we, and I mean, we could look at story after story after story. There's Lydia in Acts 16 who receives the gospel and she's like, you must come stay at my house. You ha-, and she was rich. You have to let me help you. And I like on and on and on and on. When you realize the depths of your own sinfulness and brokenness and then you experience the grace and mercy of Jesus when he pours it out onto you, it changes you. So then duty is not the answer when we live our lives, delight is the answer. So then we don't, we don't say things like, well, how much do I have to give? We say, Jesus, how much can I give? Out of delight, like your debt has been canceled. Colossians 2 says that your record of debt and sin, all of the dark, evil thoughts you've had, all of the sinful things you've done, all of the times you've slandered people and stole and cheated and lied, your record of debt, Colossians 2 says it was taken and it was nailed to the cross. It's, it's been forgiven. So if God has shown you that kind of generosity, it means our response is, okay, Jesus, what, how much can I give? My whole debt gone? So then following Jesus doesn't become about, about our duty. It becomes about our delight. I delight to live a generous life. Because look at how generous God was towards me. Um, there's been a couple of times in my life when I have really realized this. When I have realized the depths of my sin and how uh, dark my thoughts can be. 
and, and how wicked my, my heart can be and the things that I think and say and do. There's been a few times when I have just been overwhelmed. Man, I, I am such a sinner. And it's like, it's like when you come to Jesus, you feel like, well, if I come and I bring all of this wickedness and sin, it's like I'm putting my head on the chopping block. It's like Isaiah, woe is me. Okay, this is the end. God's clearly going to just destroy me because look at the type of person I am. And it feels like you're putting your head on the chopping block, but then instead of you getting what you deserve, then you experience the gospel, the grace, the mercy, the love, the compassion, the generosity of Jesus towards you. Man, it changes you. That You're like, why, God? Why would you do that for someone like me and then following Jesus becomes a delight, not a, not a duty that we have to do. I mean, 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake, your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Like, don't you realize that Jesus stepped off of his throne in heaven and became poor? Not, not even, like, just physically poor, homeless, abandoned, rejected, and then crucified so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And I don't mean, yes, I get a BMW now. I mean, Jesus says, I want to give you the whole kingdom of God. Don't you know that that's what the gospel means? So when you realize that, when you come face to face with the fact that you are a sinner and yet Jesus became poor and rejected and despised and beaten and crucified for you, that he lost everything, how can you not respond with open-handed gladness and generosity? How can we even ask questions like, well, how much do I have to give to ease my conscience? I mean, it's got to be like Zacchaeus. I'm overwhelmed with this Jesus and what he's done for me. How much can I give? What can I do? Get my whole life, Jesus, is yours now. So really, I, I think as we talk about money and generosity, I'm surprised, surprise, it has everything to do with the gospel. The gospel is actually what frees you up to be generous people, to give gladly, to surrender joyously. It's the gospel that frees you up. I can live like this now. So here's, as we close, here's the gut check question. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus and you struggle to be generous, could it be that you, you haven't fully understood the depths of God's generosity towards you? Like maybe ask yourself, okay, if I claim that I'm a follower of Jesus, but I just hold on to my money and my possessions and I try so hard to just keep it and it's so hard for me to, to be generous, can I just suggest maybe you've just lost the, the wonder of the gospel. Maybe, maybe you're like the, the Pharisees or the crowds and you've just, you're just kind of grumbling and, and you've, you feel like you've been forgiven little so I have to, I give little because it feels like I've just been forgiven little. When Jesus says, those who have been forgiven, big will give big. 
So has following Jesus become for you a duty instead of a delight? Do you just say like, man, how much, what do I have to do, Jesus? Right? It's almost like uh, begrudging obedience. Yes, Jesus has saved me. Okay. Well, now what do I have to do, Jesus? Rather than look at my debt that was nailed to the cross, that my sins were atoned for, that all of my darkness and, 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 and in wickedness was cleansed, Jesus, what do you want from me? Because you get everything. So ask yourself that question. Does my generosity towards others reflect an accurate understanding of God's generosity towards me? And that we wouldn't leave asking questions like, okay, well, tell me, tell me what, what I have to do to kind of ease my conscience. What's the bare minimum? How much do I have to give? What do I have to do? But we would leave going, Jesus, it's all yours. What can, what can I give to your kingdom? And again, that's going to look different for, for different people. But if we understand the gospel, all of us should realize that our debt has been wiped out. And so we can live. The gospel enables us to live with open-handed generosity. Like Zacchaeus, we receive Jesus joyfully so we can give away joyfully. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. What a great story of a very rich man who encountered you and responded with incredible generosity. Um, And God, your word is full of examples like that um, where uh, people come face to face with who you are and then their response is, well, of course I'm giving my whole life to you. How could I not? Um, Jesus, your parable that you told to, to Simon the Pharisee is so fitting for us. I think sometimes in the West, we just have this idea that we've been forgiven, we've been forgiven little. When in reality, um, all of us deserve death for our rebellion, and we have been forgiven an enormous amount. Our record of debt is nailed to the cross, paid for in full. So God, I pray that then as we uh, take the knowledge of the gospel and think about our view of money and generosity, it is the gospel that has to change our view of those things. It is one thing to have good principles and to pay off debt and to save and to tithe and to do those. Those are all great things, but if it's not coming from a place of our hearts being transformed by the gospel and the generosity of God, then it just has the tendency to become a duty rather than a delight. And Jesus, you want our hearts. You don't want our begrudging obedience. So God, I pray that we would be like these examples we see in Scripture, like an Isaiah or like this woman or like Zacchaeus, that we would understand your generosity towards us and it would directly impact our generosity towards each other. So God, just do that work in our hearts. Uh, We need your help to live like this. I pray that we would receive you, Jesus, joyfully and that we would respond with joyful generosity. And so we just pray all of this in your mighty name. Amen.